World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This month's censorship of LGBT accounts on WeChat, a Chinese social media platform, came as little surprise. But unlike previous clampdowns, resistance this time has been muted as a curious Chinese nationalist narrative takes hold online. And the full list of all the bacteria and other critters in and on a person can reveal a lot about their health. The same is true of cities. We look at an annual international survey of bugs in metropolitan areas and how it might act as an urban health check. First up, though. Netflix released its quarterly results after markets closed yesterday, revealing that its staggering pandemic-fueled rise is stalling. Its global subscriber growth was down by 85% on a year earlier. In North America, it actually lost customers. But still, Netflix boss Reed Hastings sounded sanguine. I think for at least the next several years, the growth story of streaming as a whole is very intact. And this is the internet applied to entertainment. And consumer entertainment around the world is an enormous market. Uh, The company has come a long way since it started renting DVDs by mail, mostly by going all in on funding its own shows and films. For the moment, there aren't plans to buy up any of its rivals. Mr. Hastings simply wants to outcompete them. So I would say really we're a one product company with a bunch of supporting elements that help that product be an incredible satisfaction for consumers and a monetizing engine for investors. And it's those supporting elements that may end up being key as Netflix tries to make itself as dominant abroad as it's proved to be in its home market. Netflix didn't have a great quarter, but that's more or less what people were expecting. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor. What we saw was the number of subscribers in the United States and Canada actually falling very unusually for Netflix, while the number of subscribers in international markets continued to rise. And I think that's going to be the pattern of the next few years. So with the domestic market saturated, then it's just a matter of of repeating its success in international markets? Yeah, pretty much. Last year, we saw Netflix made just over half of its revenue outside the US and Canada, which was the first time that it had done that. And I think going forward, that's just going to be more and more the case. One estimate is that by 2025, about two thirds of the company's revenues are going to be from international markets. Right now, we're seeing nine out of 10 new subscribers come from overseas. It's amazing the extent to which Netflix from now on is is really a mostly international outfit in terms of where its new growth is coming from. And how's it going to pull off that international growth? 
It's really repeating the same trick that it did in the United States. It's commissioning content left, right and centre. And here in Europe, it's astonishing. Netflix last year for the first time was the single biggest commissioner of new original TV series. It overtook the BBC, overtook the big channels in France and Germany to be number one. And we're seeing the same thing now in other parts of the world. It's commissioning a lot in Asia and it's just getting going in markets where Hollywood really historically hasn't done much business at all. It's doing new original series in Africa, in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe. It just did its first Russian original, the Anna Karenina remake. So really where its international advantage seems to lie more than anywhere else is in the fact that it's already got local productions going in countries where most of its rivals really haven't got started. Are there any international disadvantages in in trying to, to replicate that same model abroad? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's not all straightforward by any means. One obvious thing is that Americans in particular spend huge amounts on pay television. The cable bundle in America is extraordinarily expensive by international standards. And so American households have been trained over the years to think it's normal to spend $100 a month on, on television. In a country like the UK, even another reasonably rich country, the average is well under half of that. And if you go to a place like India, obviously, it's just a completely different game. And so Netflix has done its best to keep its prices intact. It hasn't gone around offering enormous discounts. The one concession that it has made on that front is that it's developed mobile-only plans, in particularly in poorer markets. So in India, for example, you can get a mobile-only plan for the equivalent of just a couple of dollars a month. So it's having to change its plan a bit, but it's basically the same business. But what about its competition in international markets? Who is it fighting against? Well, the competition internationally, if anything, is somewhat easier. I mean, in the home market in the US, the number of streaming services seems to multiply every few months, a new one seems to come out. And so Netflix is fighting against 10 or more reasonably serious competitors. In a lot of international markets, it's more like often there are just two or three big names, because most of the other big Hollywood companies haven't really got going yet. Among the truly global operators, you've really just got Netflix, Amazon, and Apple. And so competition in that sense is so far a bit less intense, which means that Netflix finds it easier both to get subscribers, because there aren't so many other companies vying for their money, and also easier to commission content because there's less demand for those shows. But ultimately, the, the, the plan is just to create a great deal of television and, and movie content in those markets. Well, that's certainly the main plan. But an interesting thing to watch is that they're making a number of side bets on smaller things. We've seen them recently start things like an online shop for a consumer products business. They're doing more live events. They're even doing things like podcasts. I mean, who would do a thing like that? But um, the thing that people are particularly interested in is gaming. And they just confirmed yesterday that they are going to get into games. And the word is that within, say, a year's time or so, subscribers to Netflix ought to be able to play some mobile games, at least. TV gaming seems to be a a bit further off. They're keeping all the details of their plans pretty well under wraps. But the initial budget for gaming, I'm told, is a single-digit percentage of their total content budget, which is $17 a year. So that implies a minimum of, I suppose, $170 million to start with. And I'm told that they've got high hopes that that could increase if things go well. And to your mind, is that a worthwhile investment? This is a market that Netflix is potentially well-placed to get into. They've got a huge audience, obviously, already. And gaming is a a fast, fast fast-growing market. 
all the signs are that gaming is going to only grow among Generation Z or Gen Z, the under 25s. It's incredibly popular. And so it's understandable that Netflix want to have at least table stakes in this market. And, and those table stakes could one day end up becoming pretty big stakes. Sure. But as, as big as the market is for gaming, there are some really big incumbents there. Is, is it going to be plausible for Netflix to really get its foot in the door? Well, it's not straightforward. I mean, for one thing, there are technical issues. Even if they've got a big TV streaming service, you can't just plug a game into that network. It requires different technology. Also, Netflix has, needless to say, it's it's never built a big game so far. And this isn't a straightforward business. We've seen lots of big tech companies try to get into gaming and find it very difficult. We've got Google, which has its Stadia gaming platform. We've got Amazon, which has something called Luna, which is similar. And they haven't really set the world on fire. They're finding it very, very tough. The Apple App Store could be an issue as well. Apple has a ban on gaming platforms in its App Store, which is why you can't play Stadia on iOS. It's not totally clear yet how Netflix is going to get around that. So lots of obstacles ahead, but big potential if it can pull it off. And so all told with these nimble moves into international markets and and trying to get into gaming and so on, what do you reckon for Netflix's next act, the international expansion? Is it going to work? I think they're doing just fine. I mean, people will focus on the fact that they've just lost some subscribers in the US. That has to be something that they need to think about. But there's a whole world out there, you know, and, and in most of these markets, they're barely getting started. You've got something like 750 million households worldwide that have pay TV. Netflix is in 200 million of them at the moment. So there's ample room for growth internationally. And as for gaming, I, I think even Netflix doesn't really yet know how big a deal this is going to be, but they have form in making small bets on things that end up being very successful. So I wouldn't rule them out. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's never been easy for Chinese citizens to say exactly what they want to online. But for LGBT people in the country, it's getting harder and harder. Earlier this month, WeChat, China's popular messaging service, closed down accounts run by queer societies. Those who tried to log on were greeted with messages saying the forums had been closed for violating unspecified rules. That censorship marks a worrying reversal of a trend towards more tolerance. The closure of some LGBT accounts on WeChat is the latest in a depressingly familiar series of crackdowns by the Chinese government. They have little respect for the rights of sexual minorities and even less for free speech, so this kind of thing happens quite frequently. Amy Hawkins is a news editor at The Economist. But what is happening this time is that lots of nationalists in China are increasingly decrying gay people as agents of foreign influence. So we've spoken before about how little tolerance the Chinese regime has for sexual freedoms. This seems to be worsening in some way. 
Yeah, in some ways, because recent clampdowns on LGBT content online were often met with resistance. So, for example, in 2018, Weibo, which is a kind of Twitter-like service that's very popular in China, announced a three-month campaign to clean up pornographic, gay and violent content from its services. And in 2019, the same platform shut down a lesbian discussion group that was just called Les. But in both cases, there was such a backlash online that Weibo U-turned. But it doesn't look like there'll be a U-turn this time. And why is that? Recently, as I mentioned, nationalists in China are increasingly seeing LGBT rights as part of a foreign conspiracy to weaken China, either through undermining China's social stability or through reducing the country's birth rate. And those voices are becoming much louder online. And so some of these Chinese nationalists are adopting the language and views of the far right in the West with posts such as external forces are trying to weaken China's competitiveness by spreading propaganda about LGBT to reduce China's fertility rate. That post got 66,000 views. And in some ways, they've kind of adopted or mimicked the quote-unquote war on woke that you see in the West. There's a Chinese term called white left, which has been around for a while, and it's used to criticise soft liberal Westerners. And also some bloggers accuse LGBT groups of trying to promote what's called a colour revolution in China, which is a reference to uprisings against other autocratic regimes, such as the Arab Spring and that kind of thing. So how much is this new online behavior, these these new online attitudes, reflecting broader attitudes in China offline about LGBT issues? Homosexuality has long been vilified as a foreign import in China. But in the 2000s, the Chinese government dialed back some of the bigotry, in part because of rising rates of HIV AIDS. And so in 2001, it removed homosexuality from the official list of mental disorders. Since then, at the UN and other international forums, the Chinese government has gone further by you know, endorsing or explicitly supporting the rights of LGBT people. And in big cities especially, there's a growing acceptance of gay people. So there's a disconnect then between the online and the offline worlds. I mean, how is this new online behavior being dealt with? Yeah, so there is a slight disconnect. But in general, online and offline, nationalist voices are just becoming stronger and stronger. None of these conspiracy theories that are posted online were censored or anything like that. Increasingly, because of China's recent success in dealing with COVID, and also this year was the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, there's been a real surge in nationalism in China. So that's created the environment in which people can accuse LGBT groups of being anti-patriotic or a foreign force. But there are a growing number of Chinese people who accept the conspiracy theory that all LGBT groups are funded by Westerners. And I think... What's happened is it's gone from being the government used to explicitly push the theory that being gay was a foreign import, and now they're largely silent on the issue. But then it's become a more kind of grassroots phenomenon to say that being gay is a foreign import and it's a threat to Chinese society. And so that bastion has really been taken on by the bloggers rather than the government. So it seems then, given that disconnect with what people broadly seem to believe in the offline world, that it's the people who are fighting against these LGBT groups that are actually doing the importing of the identity politics. Yeah, I think there is definitely a kind of mimicking or an importing of Western identity politics, or at least far-right nationalist discourse. It is becoming a more and more mainstream opinion that LGBT issues, and in particular any group, organised groups of LGBT people, are agents of foreign influence or a foreign conspiracy. To be honest, very few LGBT groups are officially recognised by the government as NGOs. Most are treated with suspicion, and so they'll only operate by not using the words gay or LGBT, but they'll register as youth centres or charities related to HIV AIDS. In the West, you have kind of culture wars between right-wing and left-wing people. In China, the culture war is really like, are you pro-China or anti-China? It really runs along nationalist lines. So 
anyone who accuses someone else of being a foreign agent or having loyalty to something other than China can be demonized. And do you see this as a kind of internet sideshow or do you think that that rising sentiment could undo the gains in Chinese society about tolerance? I think it's not just an internet sideshow. I think it is, like I said, like a viewpoint that is becoming more and more mainstream. And the march of progress does seem to have been generally to have more acceptance and more tolerance of gay people. But it could certainly slow that progress, if not reverse it completely. Thanks very much for joining us, Amy. Thank you for having me. Cities can be dirty places, and public transport systems have a reputation for being among their dirtiest spaces. Thousands, perhaps millions of people touch escalator handrails, ticket turnstiles, and door buttons. It's no wonder, then, that when COVID-19 broke out, fear of contamination led people to abandon public transport in droves. But the diversity of germs found on transit networks can tell scientists a lot about urban environments. Every June 21st since 2016, volunteers in cities around the world have been swabbing urban transit systems in order to produce as complete a picture as they can of the microbes that share the urban environment with human beings. Gilad Ahmed is a science correspondent for The Economist. They swab seats, they swab ticket counters, handrails, turnstiles. They put the swab in a vial and then they send it off to be genetically sequenced and hopefully matched against libraries of the genomes of known organisms. And so why, why do that? Why create that catalogue? Transit systems that exist in all these cities are one of the few areas that these different cities have in common. And so testing the bacteria, the viruses, the other microscopic organisms that exist within the transit system is a good way of comparing how the microbial ecosystem, the microbiome, varies in these different urban environments. And understanding who or what we share our cities with can reveal a lot about ourselves, about the city, and the evolution of these organisms. And what have they found? In this latest paper, which is based on 5,000 or so samples collected in 2015, 2016, and 2017, they revealed an enormous diversity of fellow city dwellers. Bacteria, some of which are associated with human beings, like Streptococcus oralis, which thrives, as the name suggests, uh, in the oral cavity, uh, and some commonly found in the soil, like Bacillus subtilis. The remarkable finding, though, is that each city has a distinct microbial ecosystem, which you could think of as a microbial fingerprint. And it's so distinct that when they trained an algorithm on the data, on a random sample, it could identify which city it had come from practically 90% of the time. Also, equally remarkably, around half of the sequences couldn't be matched to any known organisms. And one of the leaders of the study estimated that a 1,000 bacteria and 10,000 viruses or something in that region exist in cities that we just haven't found before, that there is no record of in our natural history archives. These are unlikely to be dangerous, the researchers stress, because thousands of people go into the transit systems all the time and there are no reports of mysterious new pathogens that emerge. And so how will these data be, be put to use? 
The data set is available and can be used for anything from forensic science, tracing where people have been at certain times, all the way through to public health research, which is what the authors of the study are really interested in promoting. One of the things that they studied a little was the presence of microbes that are resistant to antibiotics and render antibiotics useless. And so tracking these genes and identifying which countries they emerge in and possibly even linking the emergence of these genes to public health policies in those countries could be very useful. And presumably now they'll be on the hunt for a particular virus. Yes, that's right. And when they eventually publish data from 2019, 2020 and 2021, there'll be a much more accurate picture, hopefully, of both how the SARS-CoV-2 virus spreads and how a city's microbiome changes when there are fewer human beings taking the bus. Gilad, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.